everybody. Good evening. Um, my name is Kate Powell. I am uh, a board member and trustee here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, I am also chair of the Pratt Contemporaries, which is our young donors group. Um, and we are uh, very thrilled to be hosting um, tonight's reading and book discussion with Meredith Goldstein, author of The Singles. Um, first, just a word about the Pratt Contemporaries. We raise money for and awareness of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And I'm very happy to report that to date, uh, the Pratt Contemporaries have raised more than $175,000 for child and teen literacy services here at the Pratt. So we have uh, author events like this throughout the year, and, um, and we're, really, we're really excited to have Meredith here. Um, so <clears throat> for anyone who's ever been a single guest at a wedding, you know the drill, right? There's no plus one on your wedding invitation, or maybe if there is, you sort of choose to ignore it. Um, so you end up sequestered way back in no man's land uh, at a table at the back of the ballroom near the bathrooms, helping you fill out a table of the groom's most distant relatives. And you don't have a wingman or a wingwoman who can kind of keep you from, I don't know, say, popping a Valium and having too much to drink and making a fool of yourself on the dance floor. So Meredith Goldstein's The Singles explores all of that through the eyes of five unattached guests in their 20s and 30s who are attending the wedding of Beth B. Evans, soon to be known by her hilarious and ridiculous married name, B. Fee, which she doesn't seem to be upset about, but her friends think it's a little silly. Um, and for us Baltimoreans, there's plenty of familiar references in the singles. The novel takes place at a wedding just down the road in Annapolis. The bride's parents' house is in Ellicott City. Uh, the wedding party hits a few bars in Atlantic City for the bachelorette party, and one of the main characters works security at Camden Yards. Um, Meredith herself was raised in Maryland, in Columbia, and went to school there, high school. And so she obviously um, drew upon uh, her roots in sort of setting the stage for the singles, and I think probably also uh, borrowed um, some friends from Syracuse University's personalities in coming up with the characters. Um, when she's not writing novels, Meredith offers relationship advice through her love letters column in the Boston Globe. Um, people can call, you can call her the Carrie Bradshaw of Boston. She has heard it all through her readers. Um, a woman who's ready to move cross-country for a man she's just met who may or may not still be with his ex. Um, a man who borrows money on the first date and doesn't pay it back. And then there's also some questions in their sharing a um, cell phone um, uh, account as well, which he also doesn't pay back. Um, a girlfriend that wants to get her man off the couch and back into the gym, and a couple that wants to get that back that honeymoon kind of feeling in the bedroom. Um, Meredith has heard it all through her advice column, and she has become an expert on relationships. Um, and I'm sure that part of what she's heard has, has inspired her to, um, in part at least, write the singles. The story really does play out like a romantic comedy made for the big screen, so it's probably no surprise that the movie rights have been picked up already by a production company. Um, plus, Meredith has already done all the casting um, through her character, Hannah, um, so we know that the actors will include Emily Blunt and um, Ryan Gosling and Paul Rudd, or at least we hope. So please join me in welcoming Meredith Goldstein. Hi. Um, thanks for coming tonight. I know there's a Yankees game, uh, which, if I were at home in Boston, would mean that like everything would be shut down and the library would be closed. So it's impressive to me that it's even open tonight. So um, is this okay? Good, good volume? Uh, so it's very weird for me to be here because in Boston I can pretend that I like magically blossomed out of like my mother's womb into a relationship columnist who always knows what's right. Uh, and in this room, there are people I went to high school with <laughs> who knew me when I had bangs. <laughs> so they know that I don't know what's right a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and it's so just exciting to be here in Baltimore where much of this book is set. And I, I tell people in Boston who ask, why did you set the book in Maryland? And I say to them, because I was homesick. And to write about these places uh, just made me feel like I was there. And it's one of those things where you don't know what you have until you leave. Uh, I never thought of Baltimore and Maryland as a place that had its own character. In fact, when I was in high school, I really thought, 
you know, we're all, we're all in Maryland, but our parents are from New Jersey, <laughs> or uh, they're working in DC. Um, I really felt like Maryland didn't have its own thing. And then when you leave Maryland, you realize that it does, <laughs> and that you have it too, you just didn't know. <laughs> Uh, beyond the accent, uh, you know, beyond the Orioles, just to to be from Maryland is so is it's such a specific identity, and I missed it enough that I've really reached out anyone I can find in Boston who's from Maryland. I like latch onto them. Uh, so this book was inspired by a few weddings, one in particular, um, but definitely a few, and. I had really misbehaved. I, I was going to a wedding where I was a bridesmaid, and I knew I'd be seeing an ex-boyfriend from college, and that really shouldn't have mattered, but in my mind it did, and I, like, it was the only time I've ever successfully done Weight Watchers. <laughs> I just like stopped eating. <laughs> and I fit into this perfect dress. It was like the only, fant- well, one of a few good bridesmaid dresses that I've worn. And after I had drank too much, had the aftermath of drinking too much and woken up the next day, it occurred to me that I wasn't the only person at this wedding who was having a difficult experience being alone. That, you know, while I was freaking out about seeing an ex-boyfriend, uh, there was an older guy who didn't know anybody. You know, there was an aunt without an uncle. Um, that There were a few single guests who were very difficult to put on a seating chart. So then in my mind, that sort of became the first novel idea that I had. And, you know, I was just starting out with this advice column. And I started thinking about, well, who do I want to put at my fictional wedding? And uh, I came up with five people. One is based on me, but with my sister's job. My sister is a casting director in New York. Uh, Then I have her depressive friend who is who's not based on me, but is the kind of person who is really great in college and can't really figure out how to exist outside of fun college times and that is based on a real person she's not here tonight so I can just say it's totally based on her usually when when I've done readings in Boston I'll say loosely based but no it's not not so loosely based Um, and uh, uh, the third character um, is based on an empty seat at the wedding I was at Uh, there there was supposed to be a a different ex-boyfriend you'd think I like got around a lot in college but I really didn't but at my table there was a seat for another ex-boyfriend who had RSVP'd yes to this wedding and just didn't show up and I couldn't like who does that and says I'm you know pay for the $200 plate and I'm just not gonna show up but this guy this was pretty much in character (laughs) so I thought well what if one of my single guests wasn't even at the wedding um, the fourth single guest is the creepy uncle. That to me was an archetype. Uh, he's based on a few creepy people I know and some people I like a lot because I thought that the creepy uncle generally has a reason he's creepy and a, and a great story and I wanted to have empathy for all of my single people, no matter what. And the last character is someone who doesn't know anyone at the wedding. And there's always like that guy or that woman. I've actually been that person a few times where you just know the bride and you know, maybe from elementary school and you show up and you know no one and you're there by yourself. And I based that character on uh, a, a relationship of mine in Boston that had just ended. Because he's not here, I can say this too. Uh, one of my longer relationships in, in Boston was with someone who worked for the Red Sox and he helped run security, or still does, I should say. And because of that, I was brought into a world that I would have never known. I'm not a baseball person. I'm not a sports person. I'm sure the people from my high school can, can vouch for that. <laughs> for that. Uh, but he would take me into the bowels of Fenway Park and um, show me where the players got changed. And, and he would every night he would call me at the end of the game and say, here are all the people we kicked out tonight. And he would tell me why they were kicked out. He has fantastic stories about... Uh, every girl who gets kicked out for drinking underage says, my dad's a lawyer. (laughs) That there are just these common themes uh, throughout the season. And I loved the idea of having this fifth person at the wedding be involved in sports in some way. So knowing that my book was going to be in Maryland, I set him at Camden Yards. And what was nice about it was I was able to call this ex-boyfriend and say, okay, well, I want this guy to work security at at Camden Yards. Let's talk about that. And when you work security for a baseball team, you tend to travel. So he's actually spent a great deal of time here, as have I. And some of the stories you'll read in this book about people getting kicked out or um, just trouble at the ballpark are actually Fenway Park stories that I have ripped straight from the headlines.
Um, one of my favorite stories that I did not put in this book that I wish I had was that uh, at Fenway Park they do big concerts, and there was a Dave Matthews Band show at Fenway Park, and a, a fan over the railing peed over the railing onto another fan. The fan who was peed on was understandably angry and <laughs> ran up a flight of stairs, which in a baseball a crowded baseball park is no easy feat, and began to pummel the guy who had peed on him. And this ex-boyfriend said to me, here is the, the dilemma. Who do you kick out? The guy who's beating someone up and making them bloody or the guy who peed on someone else? And he would say to me, this is why my job is important. <laughs> and I, I loved... You know, he's a real person, but I loved his character so much, this idea that there was this world that existed without my knowing and that, you know, that, that someone at a ballpark, you know, he's had people die in the stands of heat exhaustion, and he's the person sitting with their family as the ambulance comes. Um, so to me, the, the, the person who is the most surprising at this wedding, but also in some ways the most important, is just a Camden Yard security guard uh, who's there alone because he's, he's married to, to the Orioles. Um, so... I will admit that when I first wrote this book, it was not set here. I put it in Delaware because I was so afraid of being cheesy, and um, I didn't want people to say, oh, well, everything's based on her real life. I, I not only had set it in Delaware, but I, I, instead of allowing my characters to go to Syracuse, where I went to college, I put them at some unnamed school in Vermont. But Penguin, my publisher, said, you know, we want you to, to write about what you know and where it happened, so don't try to hide where it's actually happening, just tell us. And so when I rewrote that draft, to put it in Baltimore and Annapolis and Syracuse, it just came out so much easier. Uh, so it became the book about, you know, about a place, you know, it's where it's supposed to be. So it's here. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, it, but, it, you know, a lot of people ask about um, my day job, which is as an advice columnist for the Globe, and people ask a lot about what of those columns influenced this book. And I always tell them nothing, because when I write advice, I'm, like, incredibly sane. And I think, you know, I, I sort of... I think about what's best for people and how they should behave. And when I wrote this book, I wrote about how people do behave, which is not always well. So it was really um, just separating nonsense from sense. So it really gave me, after being, being really like authoritative and talking about what people should do all day, I got to go home and like talk about things that people should never do. <laughs> and uh, that's a lot of what this novel is, what, what people should not do. So, um, so, so that's what it is. And, and uh, it's five people, and there are some hijinks, but some of the, the book is very sad. There are a lot of uh, animal plot lines in this book, which people who know me will also be surprised about because I, I am known as someone who is allergic to everything with hair. But uh, I have a dog character. It's great to write an animal that I wouldn't be able to hang around with in real life. And um, just every little, every little piece of setting is borrowed from something. Uh, the first wedding I was ever in was in Annapolis, so a lot of that imagery is in the book. Um, one of the characters, this Camden Yard security guard, lives in a neighborhood near Camden Yards that I knew from a high school person who moved there after college. Uh, so this is as local as it gets. <laughs> so does anybody have questions? I was going to read a little bit, but I didn't want to bore anybody. Anyone up for the shortest reading, I promise? I'm always a little wary about reading because... <laughs> yeah? <laughs> I'm always a little bit wary about reading because... When I go to readings, I get super bored when people read. <laughs> and I always think they shouldn't be doing this unless they can do voices. <laughs> I'm not going to do voices. But uh, the, the, because we're in a, a different city, I will also tell you that the part that I'm about to read to you from did happen. Uh, and the characters are all based on people who exist, who are not here <laughs> in the room. Um, for this specific wedding, which was a friend of, of mine from college, her maid of honor was a pageant coach. And for those who don't know what that is, it's a woman who coaches people in beauty pageants. So uh, that's her whole job, like is dressing five-year-olds and six-year-olds to look like 21-year-olds. And I had gone to this bachelorette party 
which in real life was in Richmond, Virginia. And this woman, this pageant coach, made us stay out very late. And uh, she was also just relatively scary in general. So um, this is a scene from that real life bachelorette party that we'll never tell is real. <laughs> it was hours after the bachelorette party dinner when B was fall down drunk at a place called the Smile Club and the still energetic Dawn demanded that the group stay out for just one more hour that Hannah looked to Jackie for support, a voice of reason to lead the group back to the hotel so that the drooling bride could vomit and get some sleep. But, be- but before Hannah could solicit Jackie's second opinion so that they could defy Dawn as a twosome, Jackie announced that she had a headache and she would be heading back to the hotel room early. But you guys, she said, not making eye contact with Hannah, who stared at her in disbelief, you stay out and have a good time. Hannah threw her head back, furious at the unspoken betrayal. Without Jackie's dissent, Dawn was able to lead the weary group to two more bars where she flirted with men in baseball caps, leaving Hannah responsible for the over-intoxicated bride who could only murmur phrases like, do you think Matt and I are going to get divorced? And do you think he'll cheat on me? Hannah tried to reason with Dawn, who had as much energy at 11 o'clock p.m. as she had five hours earlier when the group started drinking. Dawn, Hannah said, trying to be as polite as possible, I think B's going to get sick. I think we should take her back to the hotel. Baby, Dawn said, clapping twice in front of B's wilting face, you've got a boot and rally. Can I be honest with you, she continued, this time directing her commentary to Hannah. This is one of B's last nights of freedom. She's not going to be happy if she wakes up and finds out that she was in bed by midnight. It was another 80 minutes before Dawn allowed the group to return to the hotel, and that was only because B had vomited on herself at the bar, booting without showing any signs of rallying. Dawn had sprinted out of the club to find a cab as soon as B became a spectacle. Lisa, the shy bridesmaid, had run behind her as Dawn yelled over her back to Hannah, "'Good luck, she's all yours.'" It had taken Hannah 20 minutes to clean up B's mess and get her out of the bar. Once they were outside, Hannah held B's waist and rubbed her back as she helped the bride-to-be vomit into the Atlantic City storm drain. When Hannah was confident that B had emptied her stomach, she flagged down a cab and helped her get in. The driver banged his head against the back of his seat when he saw B's queasy face in his rearview mirror. She better not puke, he said. If you puke, it's 200 extra dollars. She won't, Hannah said, as B swallowed her saliva and grimaced. B barely made it through the ride. She vomited between Hannah's feet as soon as they stepped out of the cab and then leaned in so that Hannah could give her a hug. Hannah held her tight, ignoring the mess between her shoes, and then led B slowly through the hotel lobby, which was more crowded after midnight than Hannah would have expected, even for a casino town. Not wanting to lose sight of the sweater B had been wearing, which was cashmere and probably expensive, Hannah kept the vomit-soaked cardigan balled up in her left hand. She used her right hand to clutch B's elbow, first steadying her and then leading her past the front desk towards the elevator. After a few steps, B's tube top fell down. It was probably loose, Hannah assumed, because B had lost so much weight in preparation for her wedding. Hannah clenched her teeth as the spectators gasped. B had gone braless for the night, and the tube top, with the tube top around her stomach, all was revealed. Three college-age men in the hotel lobby gawked at the topless woman in front of them. Holy shit, one said, grinning. The second young man, who wore a Rutgers sweatshirt, even took out a cell phone and held it up to B so that he could take a picture. Hannah stopped short and stared him down. I swear to God, if you take a picture of her, I will take that phone and shove it straight up your ass, Hannah said, happy to unleash some anger, which was really meant for the bullying Dawn and the abandoning Jackie. The young man lowered his phone and looked down, sufficiently scolded. His friends were bent over, drunk and laughing. B looked down at her naked top half and giggled along with the men. I'm naked, Hannah. I know, B, Hannah responded gently. My nipples, B said when she was almost to the elevator. There are two of them, Hannah answered. Two nipples, both accounted for. They rode up on the elevator to the 11th floor where two suited men who looked like, with two suited men who looked like they were on a business trip. Hannah tried for the second time to lift B's tube top, tube top so that it covered her breasts, but it fell down again almost immediately. Nice night, Hannah said to the men with a half grin. Yes, said the taller of the two men without taking, her eyes off of the, without taking his eyes off of the breasts in front of him. Not too chilly. Then both men looked at their feet, their faces red. When Hannah got back to the room and swung open the door, with one hand still clutching B by the elbow, Dawn and Lisa were already in pajamas, seated together on one of the beds, watching David Letterman. Hannah angrily walked the still half-naked B through the room and led her straight into the bathroom. She slammed the door behind them. After a few minutes of sitting on the edge of the tub as she held B's head over the toilet, Hannah heard Lisa, the law school bridesmaid, who had been quiet for most of the night, tap lightly on the door. Do you need anything, Hannah? We picked up a box of cookies and chips on the way back, and there are still a few left. 
No, Hannah snapped, almost instantly regretting her tone. By the time the process was over and B was in fresh pajamas, it was 2 a.m. and the other bridesmaids were asleep, breathing heavily. Jackie and, Dan, Dawn, Jackie and Dawn fanned out like angels over the two full beds while Hannah slept awkwardly on the floor in front of the television. Hannah saw that the room's one rollout cot had been opened and was left vacant. Lisa had most likely reserved it for the vomiting bride-to-be. Hannah helped B lie down on top of the small cot and then lowered herself down next to Lisa on the floor, who brief- briefly opened up her eyes long enough for Hannah to say, I'm sorry I yelled at you, Lisa. I was just up to my ass and puke. Both bridesmaids smiled. After a few minutes of shivering without bedding, they inched toward each other and spooned. Hannah thought about Tom for a moment, as she often did before she fell asleep. She allowed herself to imagine that it was him next to her instead of a bridesmaid she barely knew. Hannah tried to block out the silhouette of Lisa's feminine frame and pictured Tom's broad shoulders as she sighed in the dark and closed her eyes. It was next morning. It was the next morning that Hannah decided to follow the meek but wise Lisa's lead. Dawn might be a selfish beauty pageant coach, but in the context of Bee's wedding, it was better to obey her than to defy her. Uh, and then later on, Hannah allows Dawn to do her makeup. And Hannah says, Dawn, I just want to look good. And I I trust you, but I don't want to look like a southern belle. I can't pull that look off. Please don't make me look over the top. Dawn rolled her eyes. What does that even mean? I think that means no baby blue eyeshadow and maybe no body glitter. I just want to look good, but not like I'm at a cotillion. I just want to look like me, but better. Dawn grinned. Cotillion makeup is usually very subtle, just so you know. Body glitter was designed for go-go dancers and prostitutes. I don't own it, and I don't condone it. Okay, hon? Hannah let out a deep sigh and nodded. The reality of the wedding had finally set in, and Hannah was already exhausted. Tom was probably already in town, maybe even on his way to the country club. He was with his date, a guidance counselor named Jamie. Honey, are you okay? Dawn asked, suddenly looking more genuine than Hannah had thought possible. I do want him back, Hannah said, surprising herself as she lost control, tears suddenly soaking her still liner-free eyes. Sweetie, Dawn responded, pulling Hannah to her chest. Sweetie, you'll get him back in a snap. You're gorgeous. So what's interesting about my author photo in this book is that I took an author photo, which Penguin liked, but they felt very strongly about having a bridesmaid photo as my author photo. And the photo that they chose of the many I gave them was from the wedding that this is based on. Uh, The pageant coach has done me up in this. I am smiling, but I am so miserable. (laughs) I'm barely able to walk. And about three hours after this, I had my head in a toilet. (laughs) So so that's the calm before the storm. Another thing that comes to mind being here um, in Baltimore is that I have this, you know, ex-boyfriend character who is, you know, the guy I'm going to see at the wedding that Hannah's going to see at the wedding, my fictional Hannah. And he was at this real wedding with a woman, a girlfriend, who he eventually married. And I found that when I was writing her, even though she's a minor character and just sort of at his hip during certain scenes, I was only vindictive about her as I wrote. I would say, oh, and the the too skinny and ugly hair. (laughs) You know, all of a sudden my adjectives were horrible. So I decided to name the character after someone who I really liked. That way I would have a difficult time being mean about her, and I would write her with more empathy. Uh, And I named her after a friend of mine named Jamie Green, who went to high school with me and is a Marylander who now lives in Boston. And Jamie is Jamie the guidance counselor. (laughs) She is also a guidance counselor in real life. But once I allowed this ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend and now wife to be Jamie, well, I couldn't say anything bad about Jamie. So she comes off very empathetic in this book because I was able to base her on such a great friend from home. Another funny thing about Jamie is that Jamie is spelled J-A-I-M-E, which is how Jamie Green's parents spelled it. Penguin flagged it, and they said that's not how Jamie is spelled. It's spelled J-A-M-I-E. And we can't find a a situation where a woman is named Jamie, J-A-I-M-E. So I called Jamie, and I said, well, why do you spell your name wrong? They want to change it. And Jamie said, I'm named after the bionic woman. And that turns out to be true, which is that if you talk to Jamie's parents, they named her that after the bionic woman, and that is J-A-I-M-E. So somebody in Hollywood who doesn't know how to spell names probably just decided that's what that was going to be, but I had to write Penguin a long note that said this is named after someone who's named after the bionic woman, and Jamie is J-A-I. In this, in this book, she's one of two, three, a fictional character and two real people who were Jamie with an 
I-M-E. So it's a, a weird <laughs> story. <laughs> so, and Jamie actually would have flown in from Boston tonight just to come home, but she has a newborn, so it's good, a good excuse. She's a guidance counselor with a newborn. So, <laughs> um, so now, any questions? Yes? Well, so I wrote it, and I then I didn't think twice about it. And then when I got the book deal, then I started sweating a lot because they hadn't really read it. I mean, my close friends had read it, but even the even the close friends who I lived down the street from who were in this book, they hadn't read recent versions. So I did what you do. In fact, I, I wrote something in the Boston Globe about it that it felt like I was calling people to tell them I had an STD and that they needed to get tested. I was like, "There's something. There's something you need to know." <laughs> Like, we need to talk about it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it affects you, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, and the bride was my biggest concern. She doesn't come off incredibly well. Um, and she was surprisingly supportive. Uh, the pageant coach, I was very worried about. She does not come off well. And the, I said to the bride, what are we going to do about this? And she said, oh, she doesn't read. So I'm going to her hometown later this week, and let's hope I don't get, like, a team of lawyers in my face. Um, the, the exes were a little bit different. One who was not really great in real life comes off so incredibly well, and there is a reason. The guy who didn't show up to the wedding, you know, he's a funny guy, but he's not... You wouldn't describe him as someone who is incredibly warm or thoughtful. Um, I pick great boyfriends in college. <laughs> and... Uh, when I first wrote him as a character, my editor said, he's really fascinating, but I don't like him. Can you make him slightly more likable? And I, I, in the same way that I named this woman I hated after Jamie Green, someone I liked, um, to make her easier to write as a nice person, uh, I, I did the same thing. I thought, well, one of the things that my editor said was, you're setting him up as one of five major characters. I not only want to root for him a little bit, I want to sleep with him. I should want to sleep with him, which is great advice from a book editor, and I thought, well, who do I want to sleep with? <laughs> and the, the quick answer to that question was Robert Pattinson. I, at the time I was writing this book, it was like sort of like <laughs> the, the peak of twilight, and I was like that. So, so I imagined, I sat at a desk, and I remember the day I did it, I put a picture of Robert Pattinson where his hair is all like, you know, and I thought, I'm going to imagine Robert Pattinson playing this ex-boyfriend in a movie. And I just rewrote the whole thing. And it went very quickly, but the, the physical descriptions were different. You'll, you'll notice that sometimes, like, um, this character, like, runs his fingers through his hair. Well, I don't think the real-life guy had enough hair to run fingers through, but uh, because he was so inspiring to me, that character became named, his name is Rob, um, because it was such a help. When I sent a new draft back, she said, I don't know what you did, but I really want to have sex with him. <laughs> Uh, it is also why I thank Stephanie Meyer in the acknowledgments, which was a crazy thing to do, but it, was, it saved that character. We almost had to cut him, and he becomes a fantastic love interest in this book. So, The, the last character was our uh, Fenway Park security guard, who is in the book a Camden Yard security guard. And I was most worried about him because he's incredibly private. Um, I knew he'd have a tough time, and I had borrowed a lot of his life for this. And we hadn't spoken for, like, a good year after our breakup. So there was, this was coming out of the blue. And he read it, and he was thoughtful about it, and he said, if, if you're going to use me in this book, I want to be athletic, and I want you to give me a Division I college sports career. <laughs> and, which was another crazy response. And this guy, you know, he looks like he could have been, this, this character is supposed to be in his late 30s, He's 6'6 six, six in real life. He's 6'6 six, six in the book. So to me, it was not totally out of the realm of possibility. Uh, so I remember putting him at, you know, to me, this guy is a, a Marylander through and through, and I, I wrote his character to have gone to St. Mary's because that was a school I never quite... I, like, visited maybe, but to me, it was, like, a school in Maryland that suggested that it, it might be good for someone who wasn't a, an extreme extrovert, because it was, you know, my sister went to University of Maryland, and it was like, you can get lost. 
And I thought, well, if this Phil, my fictional Phil, would have gone to St. Mary's, and he, wrote, he sent me an email that said, that's not Division I. That's not where I went. <laughs> oh. And I said, well, you have to tell me, because I, I don't know. This is not a world I know. And he said, Loyola. And what's great about that is that this year, Loyola wound up doing quite well with basketball. And I've never been so invested in a team. He and I would, like, watch together. And he actually chose Loyola because he had come down to see a game once. And Loyola's got this crazy coach. And the guy, like, coached from the stands. And so now, actually, when I said to him, what do you want me to bring back from Baltimore? He said, find me a Loyola sweatshirt. I mean, this is a guy who went to Boston College. But suddenly, his fictional college basketball career, he's just so proud of it. (laughs) So... That's a long answer to a short question, but everyone had these weird demands. Um, you know, even when I was writing myself, I, I become, I think, a, I think I'm a lot nicer than my fictional self, but I noticed that I would do these little things. Like, every scene I wrote that I come off awful, the next scene I happened to mention that I also looked really good. I mean, you start to, like, <laughs> be kind to people when you're exposing them, I guess. That's, that's my long answer to that one. Anybody else? Yeah. I do. I don't know where I got V.C. Andrews books. And for those who don't know, I don't know if anybody doesn't know, but V.C. Andrews are like this sort of gothic erotica, like Harlequin erotica um, that after the real V.C. Andrews died. It, it lives on with ghostwriters, and, and I think many people are, are familiar with Flowers in the Attic. That's sort of the iconic V.C. Andrews book. And at some point in, like, middle school, you get your hands on it. And I don't know, Megan, who went to middle school, and they probably... Yeah, I probably got it from Megan, who was always a bad influence. But um, <laughs> somebody gave me a V.C. Andrews book, and everybody's just having sex left and right. And a lot of people have asked me about Fifty Shades of Grey recently, and I was saying to somebody earlier that to me it's like V.C. Andrews, but if, if, VC, if Fifty Shades of Grey were V.C. Andrews, like the, the main characters would find out they're related at the end of the book. There's a lot of, a lot of unexplained incest. Um, one of the V.C. Andrews books, I can't remember which one, there's a girl who lives in fear of the ghost of her twin sister and like has sex with her, the, her deceased twin sister's ex-husband, and then at the end of the book she finds out she is her deceased twin sister. <laughs> that they've given her, like, so much electroshock therapy that she didn't know she is the same person. So it's like V.C. Andrews is, like, Fifty Shades of Grey, like, after, like, too, much, too many drugs or something. It's, um, but one of my... Because I always got lost in, in V.C. Andrews, and it was such a world of, like, everybody, like, clawing at each other. Everybody's... Were, they were always clawing each other's backs, and then she clawed his back, and, and everyone was climaxing, like, every 30 seconds. And when you read those books... <laughs> When you read those books for, like, middle school and part of high school, I'm sure my mother did not know. And then, like, later on in life, you experience these things firsthand. You're like, this can't be right because this is not what I read about. (laughs) So I loved the idea that my sad, depressed friend who kind of can't get out of, you know, hasn't quite figured out how to deal with adult life and be happy, I loved the idea that she was sitting, you know, would be sitting in her room just reading erotica that is really questionable all night long. Um, ironically, the friend of mine who this is based on, so, so that part of that character actually is me. <laughs> but ironically, the, 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 char- the real-life person who that depressed friend is based on came to this wedding with me, and she read Crime and Punishment all weekend. And she said to me when she read it, um, and, and had some opinions about how she was portrayed in the book. She said, well, I wasn't reading Smut. I was reading Crime and Punishment. And I said, no one would believe that anybody would read Crime and Punishment at a wedding all weekend. So I think mine is more believable. <laughs> but, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah? Yes, sir? Uh, how accurate is it to real life? And did the accuracy change start from the writing process? Did that fluctuate? Um. Uh, yeah, it, it had a different ending, uh, I have to be honest. It had a more accurate ending, kind of, um, to what happened in real life. I would say that, I'm going to go by character and say that certain characters are start to finish themselves. I would say the accuracy is less about plot and more about who the characters are. 
that's probably the best way to say it. Um, some of the stuff that happens at this wedding did happen, um, but it's really who the people are that is so accurate, especially in the case of the security guard. I really felt like I stole him. <laughs> um, the, the creepy uncle character, that said, is a combination of a few people I know and uh, named for the Boston Globe sports editor. So, of course, when he read it, he thought, I'm the creepy uncle, but it's just, just his name, just his name. He's not creepy at all. So, uh, you know, the first ending I loved. No one else loved it. I had written two endings, and um, actually I really recently saw a director's cut of the movie The Town, which was filmed in Boston, and Ben Affleck had two endings, one that we all saw and then another one that is horribly depressing, and I won't spoil it for you, but let's just say he doesn't wind up in Florida like with a bunch of money. But uh, I felt that way about my other ending, that that was like my director's cut ending, <laughs> the ending that, that was less cinematic. And, and, um, but this ending really sort of became the one I was rooting for. So, yeah. But I think if, if you were at this wedding or went to college with me, it would probably be pretty easy to pick out certain characters, I would think. Yeah. Anyone else? So what inspired you to write the book? I mean, you have all these great, you know, Q&A columns that you do on a random basis. What really was the catalyst of like, I really want to write a book, and I wanted to... That's a good question. I don't know that there's one answer, because it is, you know... I was saying to someone earlier that when you're a journalist, it's really counterintuitive to write fiction because you're making stuff up, even when you're not. And it was weird for me for a while. But I think that whenever I would tell people about this wedding and the crazy pageant coach and what happened, they would always say, oh, that makes such a great movie or book. So there was that. I also went through a breakup, and that's when you like, well, if you're Justin Timberlake, you like record an album. <laughs> or like, if you're somebody else, you like lose a bunch of weight. I was like too lazy to lose weight. So I was going to write a book. <laughs> So there was that, and, and I, I also think that there was just, I think you hit a certain age, you know, because I started this years ago now, I mean, several years ago, and, you know, I was in my late 20s, no, I guess maybe early 30s when I started it, and uh, I haven't been in the mode of, certainly at 30 and 31, I wasn't in the mode of marriage and children, and I think it's a, it's a really big age to start something, and for some people that's a family, for some people that's a relationship, and... I found it very interesting that my friends who were having first children and experiencing marriage in its first year, we'd go around in a circle and talk, and when it came to me, I felt like I was talking about a child a little bit, that this was like it had become my thing, and it had become such a release for my day job, because I have to say that as funny as the column can sometimes be and lighthearted, my job is reading people's sad problems like all day long so it was a wonderful escape from that um, but I don't know what day it was that I was like okay no I'm really going to do this but there, I'm sure there was a day <laughs> and I think partly like when you when I first got a literary agent then it's, then it's happening at that point the, the, the ball is rolling I got lucky. I love my agent. Um, she's, she is Catherine Flynn. She's based out of Boston, which is random. She's with Miriam and Williams, and she is awesome. And she went to Johns Hopkins. So when she first read this, this hit home for her for geographic reasons as well. But, you know, I, I knew I wanted an agent. I had met with a woman in New York who I had sought out, and she was great. Um, and just, like, less... She wasn't like deadline, deadline. It was like, oh, in the next few years, maybe we'll, you know, she, just, she was sort of close to retirement, and I think this had become her own private fun beach read, <laughs> but I didn't want to just write it for her. But to her credit, she was the person who said, I, she said I should be rooting for every character to get laid. That was, you know, that was her advice. Um, very astute New York literary agent says things like that. And so I decided I wanted to work with someone who really was motivated for the now. And I met with a bunch of people in New York. And it was scary. And I remember one of the people I met with is in the agency where Lemony Snicket is, Daniel Handler. And I've never read the Lemony Snicket series. I have read his other books. But like, I was like, oh, my God, Lemony Snicket is here. <laughs> Which I just knew was like a Jim Carrey movie. But to me, it was like he's obviously sold some books. 
And then I would look up, I would look up in the acknowledgments of books that I liked and see what agents they thanked. I mean, that was really, that's a great way to do the reverse process of, you know, if you feel like you're going to write little children like Tom Parada, you look to see who he thanks. And so I found some of them that way. Some, some were just friends from work who said, you should really talk to this woman or this guy. And so I did this whole, like, it felt like eight-minute dating with, like, all these agents, and they all scared me. And none of them seemed quite right. I think that when you have friends in journalism and they recommend agents, they tend to be agents who deal with nonfiction books because most journalists will write a nonfiction book. Um, and then the, I got this email from this woman in Boston, and I assumed she was in her mid-50s. And she said, you know, I really, I, I really love reading your column, and I hear you're writing a novel. Can you send it to me? And I said, you're really probably not going to like it, and I don't know. And you know, So I sent it to her, and she said, I'm ready to sign and pitch this. And we got together, and it turned out she was much younger than me. I don't know why. I sort of had this picture of her and um, was very wrong. And she said, I went to Johns Hopkins and then to Brown, and I've been a single person at a wedding, and I hate my ex-boyfriend, and I like your book. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, I've written. She's my demographic. And what she said was, "I, I am your demographic, but I'm also going to try to sell it to your demographic. And in the end, everyone I've dealt with in this industry has been female um, and probably, I would say, under 50, I would say. And I, ju- I think that's actually probably indicative of publishing to some extent. It's very, like, you walk through Penguin, and it's not just the, that floor. It's like everyone is, like, like someone in a cute dress who's like, hi. <laughs> so <laughs> they're, they're all, like, attractive, and, you know, it all looks very sex in the city in there. So, um, so she was great. And she, the thing about fiction that's different than nonfiction, nonfiction you can sell on proposal, Fiction nowadays, you write the whole thing. You write like 80% of it. So Catherine, my agent, did a lot of editing. She was really the one who said, I like ending two versus ending one. I got the book deal on my birthday last June, on June 28th. Usually it would be about a year and a half of lag time, but they said, we're putting this out this wedding season or next wedding season. So if we don't do it now, it's 2013. Like, get it done. So I would say at that point I added about 10,000 words, which I sort of knew I was going to do anyway. Um, and it didn't change much after that. So the editing process really happened with the agent. And then, you know, I, th- I think if I do a second book with the same people, it'll start much earlier. But I've, I've been lucky. Um, my agent is so great and my editor is so great. And um, Penguin's just fun, and they have like a cool penguin on everything. It's like the best. It's like the best company logo ever. I think so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyone else? Yes. Yeah, I started a second book uh, that is a lot more fiction, but strangely, like nonfiction always peeks in there. Um, it's been a bit tough to work on with all this going on, but. I think this time it'll be easier. One, one thing that I hadn't anticipated, because this was a first novel, was that you're with one character and then you're with the second, and there are five, and narratively, they're all doing different things at different times. So if you're with one person and then you skip to three, well, what was three doing while you were with one and two? So I would constantly get these notes from my sister who read and was like, you know, we were with Hannah at the cocktail hour and you brought us back to Phil, and it's like... It, it, they're already leaving the wedding. So, like, where narratively I had to actually map out, well, during the first dance, here's where everybody is. And here, you know. So, my second book is one character who's a main character, and it's written from her perspective. And she's just like, it's just one arc. And it feels like a luxury. I'm like, when she goes to the bathroom, I don't have to worry about where everybody else is. <laughs> so, I think it was slightly more ambitious than I knew it was to do it this way. But I don't think I could have done it any other way with this because to me, even though, yes, there's one bridesmaid whose story is certainly um, the wildest, she's one-fifth of this book and no more important than you know, any of the other four characters. Anybody else? Yes? Sort of along the same lines earlier, but because it's so closely related to your personal life, how many um, rewrites and drafts were there? That's a good question. I think I rewrote parts. There were a lot of parts. I mean, you, it's the longest thing you might write for a newspaper maybe is 2,000 words, and that's like 
and this is like 70,000 words. So sometimes I'd read a part and be like, I don't remember ever having written that. <laughs> so I would, I would really go through sections at a time. And one thing that I actually did with this book was that the one character who's not present, the guy who doesn't show up, I started by writing him start to finish. So he's, his story is almost like a short story. And in the end, I edited him around, edited really everybody else around him. So once I was done with him, I never had to touch any, any part of him. I just had to work them all around him. And there were little details I would change here and there. And actually, you know, since the character is, that's based on me, I gave her my sister's job as a casting director. When I finally showed it to my sister, she was like, this is not, this is not how it works. There was just some industry stuff that she wanted me to change. So that's the kind of thing that got changed at the last minute. Anyone else? Well, I will say that it has been optioned for film, which could mean that it's going to be made and maybe not. Um, but I do hope that if they film it, they, they do it here. Because uh, it does take place in Annapolis, and that would be really cool. So I've said that if they make it here, we can all be extras. and wedding, We can all be wedding guests. We can be like weird, judgmental wedding guests. That's my hope. <laughs> Well, you know the answer to that, but I will say that my first movie crush was Christian Slater. And that's a, that's a leading question from someone who knows the answer. And actually, I, the, two things made me want to go into journalism. If you're going to pick on me, I'm going to pick on you. Two, two reasons. One was because I thought that if I became a magazine reporter, I could do a story about Christian Slater and he would fall in love with me and we would get married. <laughs> because obviously that's what happens. Um, the second reason is because uh, I worked for my high school paper really informally, but I wrote my first expose about a classmate of mine and her personal life. And, and she let me. And it was the first time that, that I had really realized how much I wanted to write with empathy about my peers and how they were experiencing the world. And I think that experience really pushed me in a direction of getting to know people and wanting to spend time with people. And I think that's why journalism is so great. And people ask me, like, you know, if this goes the, the way of Harry Potter, which sadly it won't because there's no vampires or magic wands in this book, but not to spoil anything for those who have read it. But, uh, you know, I, I think I will never quit journalism because it so informs who I am, but also what I write in fiction, um, which is supposed to be kind of real in these books. So, uh, but... A good story is that two times in my journalism career, fairly recently, I have been offered interviews with Christian Slater. Both times I have turned them down because they were phone interviews, and I was like, that's not how it happens. And <laughs> there's still, like, I mean, since then, I mean, like, after I left high school, I think he was, like, arrested for biting a woman, and, like, and he's had a rough go of it, and, like, a few, a few marriages, and... Um, but... <laughs> there's... <laughs> there's still a small part of me that's like, hey. <laughs> and I remember being a certain age, like when we were in middle school and high school, being like, well, when I'm, you know, when he's 30, I'll be this. Like, he's, I think, seven or eight years older than me. And that is actually gross at the age that I was, but now it's like, that's, that's fine. So um, I have turned down both interviews, and at some point, when it's meant to be, it will happen. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> In, in journalism, um, worst, Russell, Russell Brand. That was rough for me. It was great for him, I'm sure. He was really flirtatious and got like this close to my face and disarmed me in a way that I could not deal with. Um, uh, best was, and if, if you want to see that, that actually is on my website, but he really just, it's so bad that I had to put it on there. Um, Best, I mean, I did get to interview Justin Timberlake, but I, like, I literally blacked out. Like, the whole, I have no memory of it. I know that I totally kept it together. I know that I totally kept it together, but I, I can't tell you. Like, it was, like, right before The Social Network came out, and I was like, Ugh. Um, Best was Mindy Kaling from The Office, who now is about to have a, a, a pilot. But um, we, she's from the Boston area, and... We, we had this idea in mind where the office takes place in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And for those who don't know, she writes a lot of, 
she wrote a lot of the best episodes of The Office and has executive produced. And so she's not just an actress on that show, but she's also sort of the brains behind a lot of the best episodes. But she had never actually been to Scranton, Pennsylvania. So we had this idea that we'd go with her. And I don't know how many of you watched The Office or have seen it, but she's like, you know, on the show, very ditzy, very pop culture, you know, obsessed. And I mean, she's very smart, but she is also all of those things. And we like went to the Scranton Mall for like four hours and went to like a bowling alley. And for her, she told me that writing The Office, she often Googles like, okay, I need I need Michael Scott in The Office to go bowling or I need them to go to a bar and she'll look up on Yelp what's in Scranton. And so she was actually going, their real locations, like she, a lot of the early episodes, they go to Cooper's, like the seafood restaurant, and the, the people in the office will say, I don't want to go to Cooper's. So we went to Cooper's, and she was like horrified because she wrote these things to not quite look the way they are in real life, and we went to the bar where they always go after work, and it's attached to a bowling alley, and she had like a panic attack. <laughs> um, but we just had a great day, and we talked about like, you know, or breakups and hanging out. And it's always nice. I really like interviewing people who are exactly my age because there's just something very, like, you're having this shared experience even though your lives are so different. I remember one person, I don't know if if anybody's, like, a world wrestling fan, but John Cena, I don't know if you know who that is. He's, like, you know. He, right before he got very famous in the world of wrestling, we hung out a bit and he's from Boston and he and I are the exact same age. And I was like, Oh, you're so weird. (laughs) And you're like, obviously roiding up and like jumping on people and I'm working at the globe, but it was just so maybe he's not roiding up. I don't know. (laughs) Lifting a lot of weights, I should say, but I love interviewing people who are around my age and Mindy Kaling was a great example of that, you know? So definitely worst Russell Brand. He was, he was smarter than me, a lot smarter than me. And that's hard when you know that right off the bat. Well, thank you guys for coming. This is, again, like, so great. <laughs>